0: We are constantly changing our packaging, changing our decals. Is there a new ingredient that's coming in? What could we do better? You know, it's that hustle and that you just cannot sit back mm. in my industry. I don't know any industry you can and go, do you know what? It's all cool. You know, what we've done is fine and it'll be fine in five years time. If my business you know, is not radically different in five years time, just being paranoid about all the different ranges, how do we improve them? How do we fix the packaging? Is there something we should do more, do less? And that's what I would say to everyone. It's not rocket science. It's mm. bloody hard work. Mm. It's constantly, constantly pushing and evolving.
1: Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains Podcast. Carolyn Creswell is one of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs. She's the founder and visionary behind Carmen's Kitchen, the Muesli business that dominates the supermarket aisle. At the age of 18, Carolyn bought the business where she worked part-time for $1,000. And over the last 20 years, she's grown it into an empire worth hundreds of millions of dollars. In this power chat, we asked her how she approaches new product development in a category that's always changing, why customer research forms the backbone of all of her decision making, and how a recent revelation about her leadership style has transformed the way she works with her team. So Anna and I often talk about how, you know, a business exists to solve a customer problem. So we would love to know what customer problem were you solving back then when you were mixing
0: all your muesli? You know, I'd say probably the problem then is uh, is the same as what the problem is now. And in those days, it was really about people saying, I'd like to probably eat something like I would make at home, but I don't really have the time. And no one in the supermarket was doing something that was more gourmet, more home style with ingredients you'd find in your pantry at home. So we still aim today with everything we developed to think, well, what ingredients, what what do people have in the pantry? What are they trying to make? and, And can we do it in a way and then do it you know, to sell it via supermarkets. So
2: in terms of your new product development, I'm really curious to know what that process looks like and
0: how do you come up with and validate new product ideas? So, you know, there's a range of different ways of doing this. You know, firstly, you you look at trends from overseas and you say, can I layer that over our current range? So it's things like plant-based. Is there anything that we're currently making now that we could adjust so... Do we take honey out of some of the products so that makes it plant-based, which is also vegan? And then there's also about looking at, you know, trends that are happening in Australia or, or what's actually selling and then what things that we could learn from what's selling to look at the rest of our range. And then we look at, you know, new products, new categories. Is there space where we think our brand would appropriately play? And do we think it sort of makes sense for us to develop products in that space?
2: Do you have any examples of products that you've released in kind of new areas or new categories
0: as a strategy to grow the business? Sure. So, you know, when we started, we were just in Muesli and then we, you know, developed to sort of be this sort of brand that was seen in, in playing in the breakfast space. And then about 10 years in, so I've been doing this for 28 years. So <laughs> <laughs> 10 years after that, we pushed in and developed into sort of the new we call it nutritional snacks, so mm. into that snacking space. And, you know, I think most people now actually know us more for that, that work than probably our breakfast work. And then finally, now we're working in the savoury space, so there's obviously a huge trend to sugar-free. So how does Carmen's play in, in that sort of savoury aisle? You know, it's not always easy entering a new aisle and, and you know, and particularly when we want to make sure that what we do is is better and different to the current offers.
2: So when you enter a new aisle, I mean, talking about the savoury space, what does that process look like from a business point of view in terms of validating the products that you're going to create? But then what does it also look like in terms of the conversations with the supermarkets? Because we imagine that you know, if you're releasing a new product that would be cannibalizing sales of another brand in the category. So how do you kind of navigate that?
0: Yeah. So there's a, a few different ways. So the first thing is we have an amazing online panel. So we have, I think it's probably three and a half thousand people who have chosen to join something called Carmen's Kitchen Table and we do a survey. We go out to them once or twice a week. Oh wow. And that's probably one of the biggest, most successful panels in in Australia in in food, so we don't do anything without checking with them. Mm. So we're constantly. So that might be the start. So we might say, "What do you think about us entering?" and we'll show them six different versions. What do we? What do you think about us doing like this or like that? Then we'll do something called a flavor ranker. Well, if we mm. were going to do that, here's ten different flavors. Which ones sort of appeal to you? Then we might start designing packaging. So we've just hired a graphic designer who works in house. And we get her to mock up different packaging looks and we say, well, if you had to choose, we force them. If you had to choose A or B, which one would you choose? Then we, once we're getting more sophisticated, we then would, you know, it might be simultaneously, we go out to sensory testing. So we might send some of our people products to taste, it might just be in a clear wrapper or we might do it, there's um, uh, Interception, there's places like Chadston where they have special booths where they get people to try it. And then the last piece which is kind of really sophisticated research is it's shelf pack research right at the end. So just before we launch, mm-hmm. people, and it was only developed in COVID before you used to actually do it with people physically coming in and walking down Nile aisle, but they'll walk down the supermarket aisle and we say, well which product would you pick up? Now our new product we're about to launch is sitting on that. Mm-hmm. And then they pick it up, they hold it. What did you think? What do you think about the flavours? What do you think about the photography? And then we ask them about the price, you know, that price compared to other products. Because often we can have something that would be a thumping success, but people go, well, I just wouldn't pay that extra dollar for it. So once we've done that, we often change things when when it gets to that point and then we sort of adjust um, and then we launch. So we sort of pretty much know before we launch how successful something's going to be. And um, that's taken a long time to get to that level. (laughs) And have you had any that haven't quite landed? Sure. You know, plenty of failures. And I guess what we do now is to try and mitigate the failures. So if you just say, well, the pack looks great, people are going to pick it up off the shelf, that's only one piece of it. If you just say, well, the product is seriously delicious, but then you haven't checked the pack and no one's going to actually pick it off the shelf mm. to, to buy it. So it can't just be one or the other. And then the other thing is once you've done all of that, you want to know where that volume is going to come from. So is that people just swapping from one Carmen's product to another or are people going to leave, you know, for example, we've just bought out a product that's similar to Sultana brand. You know, are people leaving Sultana brand to come and buy this? And will they buy it day in, day out at the regular price? Or are they just promotional shoppers? Are they just going to buy whatever's got a ticket on it? And then how loyal will they be? So if we're not on the shelf, would they buy something else or would they just say, do you know what, I'll wait till next week?
2: You obviously have a very sophisticated customer insights and customer research capability in-house now. But what about 20, 26 years ago or 28 years (laughs) ago when you didn't have the money to invest in that sort of activity or the time or the resources, how would you advise earlier stage founders right now who might not have that sure. capability of getting that really rich customer insight and yeah. data, because it is so
0: critical to developing products that are actually satisfying a need. So, you know, our customer research panel started with me doing something on our website, which is called SurveyMonkey, and it cost, I think, $500. And I wrote the questions myself and I put stuff up myself. So you can do it mm. in a way that's not as, you know, super expensive. Our Carmen's Kitchen Table is not a particularly expensive thing to run compared to lots of other things that other companies do. So research doesn't have to be some random thing out there that some expensive company does. It's literally, it's standing at a farmer's market and saying, well, mm-hmm. what sells? And then often saying whatever the worst seller was over a period of time, I've got to reimagine that. So I've got to change the name or I've got to get rid of that mm-hmm. flavour and I've got to bring in what's new and trendy. So, you know, you can you can easily research, and, you know, flavours that are really trendy at the moment are things like peanut butter, salted caramel. Mm. So then you say, well, hang on, you know, would I try one of those? And then we do something, we have a device called limited edition, where we Mm. try them and we put it out as a limited edition. And then we say, well, hang on, did that work or did that not work? So there's lots of ways. Don't, big is not always better. Mm. You know, it's how do you actually do what you can with the information you've got because you can you can be pretty nimble when you're little mm. and you can try things in a much more cost-effective way. You know, for us to launch something it's quite a big deal. So we can't do it like I used to do it, which was literally just, you know, put it together, cellophane bag, handwritten tag, have it down at my local little deli 2 weeks later. But it's being honest with yourself that not everyone is living in the bubble that you live in (laughs) and how do you actually go out and say in the big wide world when people have got a million things coming at them, uh, is that going to resonate with them?
1: Mm. Your customer insight team obviously is also taking in Data points from the buyer behaviour and I think the information that the supermarkets are giving you, how much of that information is fed into your decision making and is what customers saying versus what they're actually buying, does that always match up? No, it
0: does not. <laughs> um, and that's always fascinating. So, so what customers say that they want to buy for their kids is I am desperate for the healthiest lunchbox snack. You know, there's just nothing out there. And then what they go and buy is, you know, roll-ups and little packets of <laughs> chips. And so it's always fascinating. To me, one of the richest sources of data is what's actually selling. Mm. Now, you know, I just spent last week a good hour with the manager of my little tiny RGA. Now that mm. cost nothing, but I said, hey, tell me of the new things that are coming in, what's selling, what works, you know, what flavors. You know, you don't have to just do this mm. through expensive data. And so what people actually buy I think is is more powerful than than necessarily saying what they're going to buy. So when we look at that of what they're actually buying in say America or in in London, I love um, London as a really interesting market. they've got very sophisticated supermarkets and you know it's quite similar to Australian supermarkets mm. in, the, in the competition then you look at, well, well, hang on, what's working there and how could that work here? And would Carmen's have a right to play in that space? Mm. Because we can't play in every space. So you have to be realistic around that. Mm. So your products are now
2: everywhere. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) everywhere. And you're really, you dominate, you know, the category and you've got a very, very well-known brand. Obviously, your products taste amazing. They're really informed by your customer. But how much do you think your brand has played into your success and how important What value do you place on brand? So I place
0: an enormous and and growingly, increasingly enormous Mm. um, priority on brand because particularly as the world gets more crazy, particularly as it gets busier, what people can do with brand is they can say, I trust Carmen's. Mm. I don't have to think too much about that because I trust that they're going to put the right thing in the product. I trust that they're going to do the right thing by their staff. I trust that they're going to be actively caring about the environment. So that just takes a weight off my shoulders. So to me, brand is is multi-dimensional, and you need to make sure that you care about all different aspects of what your brand stands for, how it's behaving, what it would do and what it wouldn't do. And I think that that then resonates more deeply because people then go, they've never let me down. So I will be more loyal to them because over that period of time, you know, they've always delivered what they've said they're going to deliver. You've
1: obviously built the brand. The perception is that, you know, this product is created in a kitchen at home. You know, it's a beautiful homemade, it's got a beautiful homemade feeling to it, Mm -hmm. but obviously, you know, it's mass distribution. Have you ever struggled with that as you kind of grow and scale
0: and but you're trying to maintain that beautiful kind of small homely feel? It is interesting because we literally make the products mm. in like a home kitchen. Mm. And so we literally, you know, are making them and, and every day that's what I'm doing is looking at versions after versions after versions of what something's like, what's complicated. If you imagine that you've got your oven in your kitchen at home and then once we work it out, we have to take this to a gigantic oven. Mm. So... <laughs> What I'd say is what matters is what the ingredients are. What matters mm. is what goes in it. The size of the oven, as long as I can get enough of those good almonds, or I can get the coconut that I can make it toast so it's a little bit brown on the edges, or as long as I can do that, as long as I can scale up what I can do in a home kitchen, then that works. When I can't, that's when we have to have big, you know, serious conversations. Yeah. So there's things where something might be extruded, you know, they put it into a mush and they pushed out. Well, we don't do products like that because we're kind of always based back from what we make in our in our kitchen.
1: Aside from the great product, what <laughs> do you contribute the success of the brand down to? Like what's the secret sauce for you in building this brand? Look,
0: many years ago, I'm going to guess maybe 15 years ago, I got deleted from one of the supermarkets in a pretty traumatic period of my life. And what that left me with, and it's so corny to say it, God, you're going to cringe, but it left me with this healthy paranoia of like, you never rest on your laurels. What could we do better? You know, it's that hustle and that constant, mm. like you just cannot sit back mm. in my industry. I don't know any industry you can and go, do you know what? It's all cool. You know, what we've done is fine and it'll be fine in five years time. If my business, you know, is not radically different in five years time, you know, that's what I'm always looking at, whether, you know, whatever, it's like painting the Sydney Harbour <laughs> <bridge. laughs> and ever again. You know, we, we get to the end and it's like, okay, it's now time to redesign that packaging or, or people copy us. So by the time, that they've copied us, mm. we're, we're moving on to the next thing. So just being paranoid about all the different ranges, how do we improve them? How do we fix the packaging? Is there something we should do more, do less? Where is the person going to come from to buy that? Does that person know these products exist? Are we marketing effectively to them? You know, and that's what I would say to everyone. It's not rocket science. It's mm-hmm. bloody hard work. and It's mm. constantly, constantly pushing and evolving.
2: Reminds me of Joe Hogan from Mecca who always would say only the paranoid survive yeah. and like, you know, it's that sense that like you have to keep pushing forward and yeah, if you rest on your laurels, mm. you know, you don't know what might come up behind you. Absolutely. Where does that come from within you? Because it is bloody hard and I can't imagine what it would be like building a business, pushing forward for 26 or 27 mm. years. Where does that resilience drive, perseverance, determination come from?
0: I don't really know. But what I would say is that when I was younger, I worked lots of part-time jobs. And so I was exposed to lots of different industries. You know, the very day I could get a job working on the checkout at Coles, I did, you know, lots of <laughs> lots of different stuff. And so when you've been exposed to lots of jobs and also lots of shit jobs, mm. let's be honest, then you sort of go, "Well, hang on, I want a better life. I, I think I can do more. I can, you know, there's, there's a, a yeah. hunger and a drive that that comes with that. And you might often see people when you travel and you think, God, they're hardworking because you go, Well, they've got that hustle in them. I think that keeping it is really interesting. And also keeping it because you're passionate about your business being the best it can be. Mm. I'm never driven by money, right? So that's just not what motivates me, but to go into a supermarket and think, oh my God, we've nailed it. Like, <laughs> Nailed it. Or, you know, or seeing someone that puts, yeah. you know, like I know when I will go into a supermarket, if I see anyone with carmens in their trolley, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's my business. Tell me, when did you start buying that? And even to the point where, you know, we were laughing before about, you know, being able to kind of know what products people mm. buy, people are always amazed. that <laughs> I can do that <laughs> because, you know, that's what I do. That's where I spend my time. And, mm. yeah, I'm very, very proud of Carman's. Mm. You should be. <laughs> Thank
2: you. What are some of the hardest decisions you've had to make on the journey? Decisions where you really wrestled and you're like, I'm not quite sure which way to go. Like, take us back to some of those moments.
0: I mean, I think the hardest thing ever is firing people. What I've learned is that a year later, that person has moved on and got another job that suits them better. And I've got someone who's much better suited to our Mm. business. So that you cannot have passengers. You cannot not have an A-team. You have to. That is my biggest thing I have to do is make sure we have the right people, the best people, you know. And, you know, that's something I'm very proud of that we have, you know, a smallish bunch of extraordinarily good people. But everyone at Carmen's knows, like, if you are not pulling your weight, like, it doesn't, it's not for me to say it. That team would 100% say something or no, because there's a pride around we do good work and we don't just have people who are, you know, doing sloppy work or whatever. Mm. That's just not who we are. So I think that was probably one of the biggest, the hardest things for me to do. And also, you know, it's not a popularity contest. Mm. It's not how liked you are, you know, to me. I have to make tough decisions and it might be a bit round whether it's different factories or whatever I have to do to move the business forward. But that's not because I'm wanting to hurt anyone or whatever. It's really because I have to do the right thing by the business and people, you know, my staff need me to make those tough calls. So challenge if you're not making tough calls because it's too hard, you know, or it's just uncomfortable. That's certainly something that I've got better at over time.
1: Do you feel like you're always... I mean, I imagine you're constantly learning new things, but has it slowed down as the business grows or is it the reverse? <laughs> I
0: was saying, you know, I did a, a marketing MBA in COVID in marketing and then I did one in brand and let me tell you, I've never worked harder. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> my, in my life, I absolutely <laughs> smashed myself. You know, and I was trying to explain my my grade five. My 10-year-old daughter said to me yesterday, look, Mom, you kind of know everything when you're in grade five. Like, you know, well, why do I need to go? Couldn't we just go to school one day and not the next? Because, like, what else do you need to know? I can, she goes, I can just use my calculator. And, <laughs> you know, my take around that is that you should never, if you ever lose that thirst for learning, you can't know everything. So I'm always reading, you know, I, I like reading about people's, you know, business stories what can you learn from them? I sign up to, you know, what I love now, you know, like online conferences because you can sit on your couch at home, glass of wine and watch a, you know, a brilliant lecture on something. So for me, I'm working harder probably on my personal skill set. Right. And in the early days, it was probably more on the actual business mm-hmm. business and now it's probably on how do I gear myself up more to be the best leader that I can be.
2: That's
1: interesting. How would you rate yourself as a leader? I mean, did, have you identified <laughs> that you needed to improve
0: in that area? or um, You know, it's interesting because we I have a brilliant head of HR and I'm very aware of, of my shortfalls. So I'm a super nice person, but if you get right in my inner circle, I'm quite transactional. Yep. So instead of saying, right, how was your day to my husband when I come in, da-da-da, I'm like, I'm like, so has the dog been fed? Yeah. Da, da, da? And no bluff. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, you said you've got four kids, yeah. so you got—you know—you got to get—we got to get moving, yeah. <laughs> so I feel that knowing how you show up is yeah. really important, mm-hmm. and there's lots mm-hmm. of. You, sometimes you don't see that yourself, so I know that the closer that you get in, I can probably go straight into task, and I have to stop, and I have to have a little bit more warm and fuzzy around it. But that's because I've got a lot, a lot of moving parts in my yeah. life. Yeah. But you know, knowing that, you know, there's lots of different surveys and, and tests that you can do to find out your style, and then also checking it as time goes on, you know. Mm, has it changed? How are you? So yeah. for me, I know through it's HDBI, which is a, a great tool, how I show up is fine and then how I show up when I'm stressed. So when I'm stressed, I show up saying, give me all your problems, everyone run around, give them to me, I'll just go run to my office and solve them. So I grab all the problems and run away. But that's not the way that you should show up. So knowing that's how you're going to show up, it's like, well, hang on, let's work through this together. <laughs> That's useful.
1: I understand. <laughs> I'm like, do I do that? <laughs>
2: do you feel like your insights about how you lead and grow and build the business have evolved over the course of these last few decades? And have you evolved as a person and as a leader oh, during that time? Sure.
0: Because at the start, you no, know, I've done everyone's job accounts, yep. you know, for a long time. I think for ten years it was only me. So when you know, and that's what I say, you know, to the guys, like the person that imports the orders, if they don't turn up to work one day, like literally the whole thing stops because we're not processing an order. So knowing the challenges around each different role Mm. and then also knowing that as the business gets bigger, how do I still connect with people? Because Mm. they want to have, say, a relationship with me and one of the things I do is I do a new starters lunch, and you know how are you raw and vulnerable with people about what are the challenges for you, and and I get them to come into my office, and we just have like four of us and have you know really interesting sort of conversation, and always being able to say my door is open if you need to come and see me about something, you know, really being able to be open and vulnerable mm. and, and accessible to all different mm. levels, you know, it's not a hierarchical game, mm, yep. and I've experienced a lot of businesses that are really hierarchical, and I. And I don't think that gets the best out of people.
1: Has there ever been a point that you've wanted to throw in the towel, that you've wanted to give it up because it's all just been too
0: much? 100%. If I could have given this business away in the first five years, and I hope that anyone's listening, I hope that you can hear that the first few years are really, really tough and it's the resilience that you can find in yourself you know, my advice is try and see if you can earn enough money to pay for your life elsewhere so that you can actually pay your bills because my problem is I couldn't pay my bills. So that was triply stressful and, you know, now looking back, it's like taking that job as the waitress at night or, you know, working weekends somewhere else. That's what you've got to do to be able to keep plugging away but don't put your head in the sand. You have to evolve you have mm. to work out how am I going to step this forward. And, you know, I, I often say to people, just take a notebook. You know, for me, I can go to a busy cafe and and still think, but wherever it is that you need to think and say, well, what are the things I'd need to do in the next three months to move the business forward? Because we often fall into working in our business, mm. not on yeah, our on business. Mm. And so what are the things, you know, I have to get that website fixed, I've got to get a shop fire account set up. I've got so and then each day try and start by saying, Right, I'm gonna plug away on those things that it'll step me forward. But people look and they say, oh, my gosh, you know, Carmen's is such an overnight success story. And, you know, mm-hmm. I know that they, you know, do the same for Joe from Mecca. We've both been doing this for a long time. Mm. You know, it's a long slog and when's whatever it is, 28 years overnight in mm. anyone's mm, yeah, language, yeah. definitely not. Oh, <laughs> my, it's a lot of nights.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> When you're in those moments, just when you're in the trenches, like, you know, five years in or even 10 years in or even 20 years in, I'm sure the the problems become even bigger and more complex. When you're kind of at that
0: point, who do you turn to? Before I'll I'll come to the turn to, but I'll just go back. I think what I would say is if you ever had to have a few things to say, how do I know my business is moving forward? You want to sell between 10 to 25% more stuff than you sold last year. I don't like selling more than 25% more because then it becomes really hard to manage your business. Any business that grows, you know, 100% year on year, Mm. it just becomes harder to hire people. And that's still my my aim there. So you want to make sure you're selling more. You want to make sure that that you're actually making some money out of that. You can invest the money back in, mm. but you really want to say, well, for every $100, I want to make sure that I've kind of made 10 bucks. And so if your business is progressing forward and that you know that at the end of the day there's some money dropping to the bottom line, then you can go, well, hang on, I'm still edging forward. What becomes very hard is if you're contracting. Mm, yep. And that's where businesses that go super big, super fast, it's you're know, getting rid of people and contracting that's the um, challenge. I think that sometimes, and I mentor lots of small businesses, and I always say to them, don't hang off my every word. You have to take what I'm saying with what you're thinking, with perhaps what your partner's saying with your gut instinct, and you've got to swish it around. Because sometimes I might say, look, you know, I'm mentoring someone with a plant-based ice cream the other day that's selling phenomenally well. So what about trying to get into America? And I said, just try and like just nail it here so you can make enough money before you push to export. And then, you know, I see another business that's like got a huge account in America. And I think, oh, I hope I didn't stop her. Mm. And I think that there is a sense, you know, for me, I've gone to different people at different times. So I might go to someone who I think would help me with the finances and I'll say, Can mm. I sit down and go through that? Or I might go to someone who I think has built an amazing brand and say, What do you think about this? So don't just think it's one person and think about what's your challenge and who do you know in your network. Mm. You know, I don't mind talking to anyone, but like, know what you want to ask me. 100%. What's keeping you up at three o'clock in the morning? Don't just tell me everything that's good. Mm. And don't ask to pick the brains. Be
1: really specific yeah. on what you need mm. help with.
0: Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Mm. What do you think,
2: or what has been one of the biggest mistakes you've made recently in the business?
0: Oh, I don't know that, you know, I mean, whether this was a mistake or not, you know, we we bought a a big, amazing new head office and I probably spent two years of my life really involved with the move and the fit out and, you know, and it was a, a super big project. You know, we've got 5,500 square metres, we've got gyms, yoga studios, saunas, you know, function spaces, you know, it's like a complex project. And everything, whatever you say yes to... You're saying no to something else. <laughs> we say that all the time. All the time. Yeah. You know, while I'm saying yes and building all of that, i am probably not got my eye on as much on product development mm. what we should do. And then what comes through is, you know, well, we didn't quite have the success. I probably wasn't as, you know, paranoid about what was happening in the business because I was too worried about the move. You know, that's probably something I'm a little bit conscious of at the moment. But I think I never mind, and this sounds corny as well, I never mind if we've done something wrong. I just mind if we haven't learned from it. Mm. So it's okay if we launch something and it wasn't, it didn't work, but we need to know what do we learn from that. So we do spend a lot of time in kind of like trying to work out, did we rush too much? You know, so it might be something like, you know, the product tastes great, but the pack format was wrong and we just didn't test enough or we'd never, you know, we used to not take it to price testing. So we launch it and we go, well, you know, people just, didn't want to pay for that big a pack size. Often it's not, it's the price equation's the same. People just want you to give them a smaller pack at a cheaper price point. So sometimes, you know, it's just always the learning and always the stopping and thinking, I think, that's super interesting and then you don't mind that you'll never make the same mistake again.
1: <laughs>
2: Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> How do you create the space for yourself to stop and reflect? Because we imagine as the CEO and founder of a huge mm. company with a huge team and oh. a family and four oh. kids and this, that, the other, oh. like,
0: and as you said, taking the time to reflect is critical. Look, a couple of things. I don't work January. I don't work in the office January. I certainly think that's my thinking time mm. and I mm-hmm. try and set myself up for the year. I also think you need to be able to glove your ideas as the year goes. So if you imagine the idea of someone standing out in a baseball field and these balls coming in different directions, have you got that big mitt to grab the ideas? So for me, that's sending myself an email with whatever that is. And then once I sit and look at my inbox, well, hang on, am I putting that on my to-do list? How am I managing these? Because I've always got a million ideas. Like I was laughing, my mascara was running out and each morning I think, I've got to buy another one of those mascaras. And then I drive to work, do you think I've ordered the mascara? You, then you get to the point where things are getting dire, guys, <laughs> right? They're getting dire. And so because you're just not going to remember it later. But if you stop at that moment and you say, hey Siri, email myself buy mascara, that's as long as it takes. That to me, I feel like I'm being, okay, for all men listening, yeah. i sure there's an equivalent um, example for you. But, you know, it's how do you glove them? How do you actually mm-hmm. capture it in a way? And whether that, you know, some people carry around a notebook and are just great at mm. writing that down. So that you can sort of capture and look, it might be from buying a mascara to ringing that contact to following up on someone you haven't spoken to for five years and seeing what's happening in that industry. You know, it's you heard something on the news and you think, oh, you know, whatever that is, you you might see, I might be out and I might see, you know, some really interesting packaging. And then I take a photo and email it to work to say, oh, better talk to Diner about whether we could do packaging like that. Mm. So it's just prioritising yes. it,
1: prioritising it, and catching, it. And catching it and building that creativity into every day. We'd love to know your best piece of advice for everyone listening.
0: You know, you don't ever want to die wondering. So if you've got that burning idea or if you've got that desire to do something more, you know, don't think that you have to give up your job on a Friday to start this business on a Monday but just give it a crack. You know, we, we never regret the things we try, but I think we really regret when we look back to think, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I try that? And, you know, sometimes pushing yourself out of your comfort zone to give those different things a try, you know, and whether that's through a course, a learning, a, you know, a small business you're going to start, you know, whether it's moving into a different suburb state, I feel, you know, it's it's hunting for the bravery in our life, not shirking from it. Cool.
2: That was a great quote. Uh, I love
0: that. Made that. That's oh
2: going god. on a tile. I'm That's I'm sure. for Bravery, not shaking. I love oh that. Oh my god, that was great. Here's what we took away from that great chat. Firstly, Carolyn knows her customer so damn well that before we press record on this interview, she was able to predict the three muesli bar flavors that were floating around in our producer's bag and correctly. Knowing her customer this well has been such a huge factor in her success. How well do you know your customer and what can you do to understand them better? Secondly, carving out the time to continue learning new hard and soft skills will really help you as your business evolves. As a founder, you've got to be a lifelong learner. What can you do to upskill today? And lastly, Carolyn is such a great example of how determination pays off in the end. On this journey, you will doubt yourself and at times you may want to throw in the towel. But if you keep doing the work, keep showing up, you will be successful in the end. That's it from us. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast for more great chats and come and join the conversation in our Facebook group, The Lady Brains Clubhouse. Lady Brains
1: is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic.